Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. 2020 has been a wild ride. It surely has been a year of transformation. We're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, worldwide uprisings against police terror and containment in the African community. Now we are headed into a desperately contested presidential election in the United States. For some, this period has been defined by confusion and despair. In the midst of this all, the African working class is organizing and fighting back. This November is the 12th annual Black is Back Coalition's Black People's March on the White House. What a time it is to be alive. Today, we are joined by Chairman Omali Eshetela, who will bring clarity to the current events and provide the way forward. Chairman Omali Eshetela is the leader and founder of the Uhuru Movement. Over the past five decades, Chairman Omali has initiated campaigns to defend the democratic rights of the African community, to organize and raise up African women, to mobilize opposition to U.S. wars, and to popularize the demand for reparations to African people. Chairman Omali has built the worldwide Ahur movement and the African Socialist International with branches in the U.S., Europe, the Caribbean, and on the continent of Africa. Welcome, Chairman. Uhuru. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction, Comrade Muambi. Chairman, in your 2013 book, An Uneasy Equilibrium, The African Revolution versus Parasitic Capitalism, you identify this stage of imperialism's downfall as an uneasy equilibrium. You write, there is an uneasy equilibrium between the past and the future, and much anxiety abounds throughout the world. Every individual, every social force that perceives its future attached to the existing imperialist social system is experiencing severe distress. On the other hand, the African working class looks at imperialism in crisis and is excited because they know they can only be free when the parasite dies. Assessing the last several months of revolutionary activity throughout the world, can you explain the optimism and excitement you feel about the current stage of struggle? Thank you, uh, Comrade Massimella, for that uh, very insightful question. Uh, The reality is, as we know, the entire world economy, the whole economic and and political configuration of the on the planet Earth owes its existence is is defined by uh, the fact that the capitalist system was born uh, through slavery and colonialism, and it is a parasitic social system. It has uh, for six hundred years fed off the looting of Africa, of the disenfranchisement, the forcible dispersal of African people around the world that created vast amounts of wealth, unprecedented amount of wealth that went into Europe. And uh, this social system, this economic, this this economy that they refer to as capitalism, which has its birth, has its uh, origin in slavery and colonialism, <coughs> requires this ongoing relationship, uh, like any parasite. Uh, it has to have a host in order to exist. And what we've been seeing happening throughout the world, uh, whether that's in, in places like uh, they call the Middle East, uh, <clears throat> uh, throughout uh, the struggles being waged by uh, people in Syria and and uh, the, the uh, recapture uh, by Iran uh, of, uh, of that country, that territory, at least uh, uh, for the Iranian nation itself, for... <clears throat> we're seeing that there's serious challenge to the parasite. This is the host 
uh, re- removing itself, uh, struggling to remove itself from the clutches of the parasite. And you see the same thing happening in places throughout South America, Venezuela, of course, being an outstanding uh, example of that. And uh, uh, the African population uh, all over the continent of Africa and in this country are fighting too and struggling. Uh, and uh, this is the thing that has uh, shaken uh, the social system to its foundation. And even as uh, this parasite is being challenged by the resistance of peoples around the world that allow us to call it an uneasy equilibrium. Another thing that has stepped on the scales of history is the contest between the U.S. and 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 uh, some of its uh, traditional colonial uh, allies uh, in Europe, and then all of them uh, in this contest, but specifically the U.S. Uh, with China. So you've got a parasite. Uh, that's losing access to the host partially uh, because of the resistance of the host and partially uh, because there are others who are feasting off or moving in to try and uh, get those resources which were uh, traditionally uh, primarily in the possession of, of the United States. So this is, this is the uneasy equilibrium. It's, it's shaking up the uh, current uh, social system. Uh, the whole uh, economic configuration of the world is under challenge right now uh, due uh, to this contest and certain, certain other things. Uh, so uh, this is the uneasy equilibrium. And uh, the, the, we say uh, this is a system that came into existence through slavery and colonialism. Uh, the colonizers are fighting uh, back, fighting against colonial domination. And uh, the weight of, uh, of, of history... Uh, right now is certainly uh, something that uh, lends itself to uh, the struggles of the people. So the imperialism, the colonial domination that we have lived with for the last 500 years is, uh, is the past. And the struggle that people are engaged in now uh, is uh, for the future. So we say it's a contest between the past and the future. Thanks, Sherman. On that accord, Can you explain the significance of the worldwide rise in resistance to police occupation and terror in the African community? You know, like we've said, uh, we're looking at uh, colonial domination. And colonialism uh, is something that is not easily accepted by masses of people, though sometimes uh, people who are organizers are exasperated because history does not move uh, at the rate that they think it should move. but the people hate, and, and, and therefore uh, some people are, are disappointed because the masses uh, have not uh, risen uh, as quickly or effectively as they thought that should be the case. But people hate uh, colonial domination. They hate it. And uh, that hatred is expressed in a thousand uh, different ways. And uh, because the people hate it, because the people hate uh, seeing uh, their lifeblood and all the resources uh, uh, flowing from our communities and going into uh, into uh, other communities, into the coffers of the ruling class, the white ruling class of the world, or any ruling class for that matter, then uh, there must be some mechanism by which uh, uh, the people can be contained, the struggle can be con- contained, and that a social system based on this relationship of uh, extracting value uh, from uh, another sector of the population that's denied access to its own resources there got to be instruments through which uh, this this kind of relationship can be maintained. Maintained. That's the relationship between the oppressed and the oppressor, and that's what uh, there's an instrument that's recognized as the state. State is that monopoly of power. It is uh, 
the the situation where you have the bureaucracy that uh, that oversees this apparatus, but you have uh, you're looking at the police, you're looking at the military, all forms of military. You, uh, you're looking at uh, intelligence organizations, the court system, uh, the prison system. All of that constitutes the state, and the police uh, is the first uh, line of uh, resistance of uh, to. Uh, any uh, change uh, with the system, uh, any country around the world. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the police uh, standing there, and we're looking at uh, the the uh, loss of effectiveness uh, by the ruling class to portray the state and the ruling class as this paragon of good, uh, this, uh, this uh, force that uh, stands above it all and looks out for the interests of everybody. That's, that's uh, been thrown uh, forever uh, into... Uh, the, the dustbin of history, to coin a phrase, uh, and more and more people around the world under the leadership of African people uh, uh, in this country that's, that sparked up the most recent uh, uh, expressions of resistance. More and more people are turning their hatred toward uh, the police, toward, uh, toward the state. And uh, so that's, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at uh, the people really uh, responding to this reality of the police being an instrument of oppression, an instrument that is a part of the state power. Uh, it is a part of the uh, forever intent of the ruling class to maintain a monopoly on violence. Uh, and that is what the state is. And the police, again, is the first line of uh, that in domestic situations in the United States and around the world. Uhuru, thank you so much for that, Chairman. And as you as you uh, continue to explain, you know, we understand that a dying colonialism is a dangerous colonialism. And as the parasite continues to feed on the masses of African and colonized people around the world, it aims to suck more and more blood. And um, something I wanted to ask um, what you have been speaking to is how does this crisis of parasitic capitalism explain the upsurge in colonial violence that we've been seeing against African people? Well, an aspect and a primary aspect of the uh, crisis of imperialism is the resistance of the peoples of the world. And this uh, creates uh, serious uh, contradictions uh, throughout the whole world and throughout the economies even of the colonizers, the societies of the colonizers. Uh, The success of oppressed peoples and taking back our resources means that there are fewer resources that the colonizer, the ruling class, is able to share uh, with uh, the colonizer national population. You know, so that's, uh, you know, like a part of the uh, the reality that we're looking at. And the people rise up and the people fight back. And this resistance, this uh, fight back by the people is the basis of the, uh, of the police and the loss of respect that the police have achieved. You got to remember, if you go to a court in this country and most of the European world, capitalist world, the state uh, is disguised. If you go to a courtroom, it has uh, characteristics of a church. Everybody has to be quiet and, and you have to stand when this guy in the, in the priestly robes come into the place and presides from this altar or pulpit, if you will. And the whole thing is an ongoing process of the state uh, to uh, really uh, mysticize itself and what its role is. And uh, this has been successful in in the United States for a long period of time, especially for white people, for whom uh, the dictatorship of the ruling class, which is uh, ruling class power, 
which is the state, is has is usually something that has been uh, disguised, that people haven't been able to see it. But for the Africans, Africans live with this every day. So, you know, while there are white people who go to school and learn things like uh, about freedom of expression and freedom of assembly and and have teary-eyed discussions about that. The African community, uh, like, uh, know that uh, you don't. There's no freedom of assembly. If you are uh, in the wrong place, if you're standing someplace and an ordinary uh, cop wants you to move, uh, there's no argument you can give about freedom of assembly uh, without risking your life. And that's related to freedom of speech too. We have no free speech. There is no uh, a freedom of assembly. So uh, for us, the dictatorship of the state is quite clear. It's quite obvious. It has been for a long time. Increasingly, the struggles of African people have been forcing this reality uh, up into public view. It's now, it's now not something that's so easily disguised or pretending to be disguised. White people have supported the police because, uh, usually speaking, uh, the fear of Africans uh, rising up and Africans are coming, to, uh, taking back resources has been stolen from us because we've been the other. We've been the colonizer. Uh, uh, white people have used, been supportive of the police uh, in America for the same reason they support the Marines in uh, places uh, uh, like Iraq or uh, other places where they are fighting because they see that uh, they've convinced that somehow uh, these are foreign uh, uh, forces that have to uh, be defeated in order to protect the American way of life in America. And that's been true inside this country too. And that's why Africans are treated a certain way. Africans respond a certain way. And now uh, finally the the white population uh, is being forced to have to deal with that, not because of some epiphany that's been achieved uh, by the death of George Floyd or anything like that, but because of the uprising, because uh, the fact that Africans are rising up, it forces uh, the white population to have to look at this question differently uh, than they would have to look at it if we were passively uh, just accepting it, no matter how vile uh, the oppression is. Uhuru, thank you for that, Chairman. Last year, you traveled to England to participate in what has been called the Africa Debate at Oxford University, the most recognized debate society in the world of academia. Like Malcolm X before you, you captured the attention of the entire world in your fight for African liberation, in your speech, which has been viewed by millions of Africans around the world. In the debate, you made the case for the embrace of a closer African union. Why is the unification of the African nation so important today? The reality is that Africa will not have a future unless Africa and African people are united. The way Africa is being exploited and Black people around the world are being exploited it is due to the fact that our oppressors have succeeded in disorganizing us and uh, uh, creating all kinds of inst instruments through which uh, we have been disunited, even consciousnessly. I mean, it's only been since uh, 1963 uh, where there was uh, any attempt to really convince African people worldwide uh, that we were not one people. I mean, this is where you really begin to see uh, the emergence of, of this notion that you hear all the time where Africa is not a country, it's a continent, and there are all kinds of different countries in that continent. <laughs> the fact is that Europe attacked the land, and uh, Europe uh, created the borders that uh, constitute what are called uh, countries there, and sometimes even called nations, etc. So uh, up until 1963, where this arrangement created by Europe 
was codified by, by apparently by Africans ourselves uh, with the founding of the Organization of African Unity that actually uh, said in its uh, founding documents that the colonial borders created by white power would be uh, sacred, that they could not be challenged, that these were the borders that were going to forever define the African uh, population, our relationship to each other. So that, that was a very treacherous thing that happened to us. And this contributed to disunifying Africa. And the significance of that uh, can be found in the fact that Europe did everything it could to discredit Nkrumah, the United States to discredit Nkrumah, fight against Nkrumah, paid all kinds of money to sell us that even attended this 1963 conference to, to build that built the, the Organization of African Unity. Uh, that unity between African people is something that could not be tolerated because if it were to occur, it would obviously uh, make it more difficult, if not impossible, for uh, Europe. Uh, and, and when I say Europe, I mean America, and I mean Australia, and I mean a Canada uh, in, in that uh, as well. It requires uh, our being disorganized and disunited uh, for the ongoing uh, expropriation of value from, from our, so that we don't have access to our own resources. Uh, but Europe does. Obviously, we have to fight to change that. And some time ago, the African People's Socialist Party concluded that... Uh, the African Revolution had reached its, uh, its limitations. Uh, the struggle that happened in the 60s should help to help to clarify that. Uh, it's, uh, whenever we are trying to make this uh, struggle for our liberation uh, within the context of the borders that have been defined for us by our oppressor, we can't win. We can't unite. We don't even have access to each other. We don't have access to our collective genius. We don't have access to uh, our collective capacity to resist or to build or do anything at all. So this issue of the unification of Africa is critical. And you're talking about 12 million square miles of nothing but value, richness. Africa, they've been looting Africa now uh, for several hundred years. And still uh, there's more and there's more and there are more and more capitalists. Every time an imperialist, a capitalist wants to rescue itself uh, in terms of its failing fortunes that go to Africa. Every time a uh, would-be uh, thuggish imperialist state wants to grow itself to do something better for itself, go to Africa, loot Africa. And, and that's been an ongoing process for a while now. Africa must unite. And that's the only way we're going to be able to have the resources necessary uh, to win our freedom and our liberation. And unified Africa gives us a strategic approach to our struggle wherever we are in the world. And it gives us uh, access to workers, uh, auto workers in Brazil. Uh, it gives us access to farm workers in South Florida, as well as uh, on the continent of Africa in various places. And all of the genius that uh, belongs to Africa can be collectivized and, and used to serve Africa, as opposed to now, uh, where this separate and divided Africa, we find ourselves uh, serving the interests of uh, other powers uh, to our detriment. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Chairman Omali Yeshitela. Chairman, on Tuesday, Donald Trump was talking big mess about the coronavirus pandemic. He called it the China Plague. On Thursday, it was reported that he and at least a couple dozen of his associates have tested positive for the virus. Yet, yesterday he was released from Walter Reed Hospital with positive vitals despite needing oxygen on Friday. Some people say this was a hoax, but I think it exactly underscores why you labeled this virus the colonial virus. 
With scores of doctors at his side, he has foreseeably been able to kick the disease that has killed Africans with no prior health issues, twice the rate of whites. What are your thoughts on that, Chairman? I think you're right on virtually everything that you said. And, and there are parallel ideas in the question that you just raised. And, and one of them, of course, is uh, the question of, of whether or not uh, Trump actually uh, had acquired the virus. So, whether it was a hoax. And the fact that uh, various sects of the ruling class uh, and media and uh, white people and others uh, uh, in this country uh, debating that, uh, you know, uh, actually saying they don't believe it, saying that, that Trump is lying and his administration is lying, that he, he has not contracted uh, that disease. Uh, and the fact that you had that happening is a testimony, too, to the crisis of this social system. Because this, this man, uh, Donald J. Trump, uh, is the president of uh, the uh, country that is self-proclaimed uh, most powerful, most just, most democratic, uh, wealthiest uh, country in the world. And uh, he comes out and says that I have a life-threatening disease, and people are saying he's lying. They don't believe him. And so I think that's part of what we're looking at in terms of the crisis of the social system, that this guy can stand up there and say that he has this disease and, and people actually don't believe him. And to disbelieve him is also a statement of not caring whether he has it or not, one. Two, I do believe that it also contributes to uh, deepening the crisis of imperialism because the observation that you just made uh, in terms of here's this man uh, who uh, is obese, who uh, is white, who has a diet uh, that they bragged about uh, from hamburgers or from a fast food joint. And you don't even know if it's a burger from a ham, as bad as that would be uh, by by itself. And uh, he contracts a disease uh, that is uh, actually uh, doing damage to our communities throughout this country. I mean, how many people, family members have, have contracted this, died from this? Uh, in some places like uh, England, you see uh, like Africans are four times more likely to contract this disease than white people and two and a half times more likely to die from it. You have uh, at least twice the likelihood of, uh, of uh, the numbers of Africans in the United States contracting this disease. And depending on where you're located, it could be much, much, much higher than that. And so we have people who are dying of this disease and Ordinary white people, some of them dying from this disease as well, and they're dying uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because of a capitalist social system doesn't give a damn about the health of the people. In fact, uh, what they call health care, which is really pharmaceutical uh, care, insurance company care, uh, would be you know something better used to characterize this. The health is a commodity too. And when I say commodity, I mean it's there for sale, that hospitals Medical care uh, is not there for people who are sick. It's not for sick people. It's there for sale. It's there for people who have money and who have enough resources. And this is one of the contests that's happening now in this country that uh, some people are, try are hoping that they can be effective enough in showing how there is no health care uh, and showing how there's supposed to be this threat to throw out an existing health care that doesn't exist uh, uh, to their political advantage. The fact is that the people uh, have to see this. The people have to notice that. People who live in communities uh, where they know people have died or uh, suffering from uh, this disease and see this white guy who, again, is overweight, who uh, has a horrible diet, 
And he walks out of the hospital three days later. So that's, that's something that uh, helps to contribute to this contradiction. And then the third thing that I think is related to the first thing I mentioned is that uh, it also is associated with the truthfulness of uh, Trump, even if he is as well as he says he is. Because, uh, and doctors say he's well too, uh, his doctors, uh, while other doctors on the sidelines are questioning whether or not uh, that is the truth. And uh, it's part because Trump is uh, right now involved in trying to show how tough he and America are. He's a tough white guy. He doesn't allow a virus that's killing everybody else to knock him down. He's a tough white guy. <clears throat> America's a tough country. Even in the face of all the evidence of a crumbling empire, America has to be portrayed as tough. And this is a part of what Trump is doing. And doing it partially uh, for his own electoral uh, benefit, he thinks, and partially because of a need that uh, he and others feel is necessary to portray uh, America as a strong force that is not in trouble, that their so-called forces who are opposed to them uh, shouldn't dare think of challenging America because they still got a tough white guy uh, at the helm. This is part of what you're looking at. And all of that speaks to the crisis of the whole social system. They don't know if he's lying one way or the other. He could be lying uh, for one reason, lying for another reason about his health, lying when he said he had it, lying when he said that he's better. Uh, that could be the case. And of obviously, what is people see uh, that this uh, overweight, poor eating white guy could uh, contract, uh, they say, this disease and then three days later walk out of a hospital. Chairman. Many liberals and progressives are frantic about the possibility of another Trump term. How should the everyday working person in the African community evaluate the difference between a Trump agenda and a Biden agenda? The everyday African person <clears throat> will not have uh, access to much of the information that will help us to look at the difference. In part, it's because the everyday African person no longer has access to the political leaders uh, in our communities and neighborhoods that that did exist before the United States government killed off and jailed off uh, so many of those forces in the 1960s. And we exist just in, in various pockets of this country and the world right now. So the everyday African person probably uh, will have the same basic perception that comes from the, the so-called leadership, the African middle class or petty bourgeoisie that functions primarily as a transmission belt ideologically and politically uh, from a sector of the ruling class into our communities. And uh, therefore, uh, what will be uh, seen is not so much Africans who see uh, the Biden agenda or the Trump agenda. Uh, what they see is a white man, Trump, uh, who uh, is fearful that Trump is a threat. Trump is a bully. Trump is uh, somebody that's characterized as a racist. Uh, Trump uh, does not mean African people well. And so uh, people will not look at Biden's agenda to make a determination of whether they should vote for Biden or Trump. They look at Trump, who acts in the same typically uh, racist uh, white way and will vote out of fear. And that's mostly what would happen. But of course, Biden is also acting in a typical white way because his agenda, when it is exercised, when it is uh, put in motion, is worse, if not uh, as bad as Trump's agenda. Uh, you won't see uh, neither Biden nor any other uh, sect of the Democratic Party 
protesting what the United States government is doing to peoples around the world. And even when it comes to this murder of African people in this country, you don't hear Biden saying black community control the police. He apologized for the police. The police wrote the crime bill uh, that he uh, put in motion and threw Bill Clinton responsible for a 500 percent increase in the number of people going to prison in this country. Most people don't have access to that information. So how people will make a distinction is it will be based on the kind of work that we do uh, in our communities and our strategy for building in these various regions in the United States and throughout the world and for opening up local offices where people can uh, access us and we can access them more easily, getting our newspapers and things like that out into the hands of the people and getting this discussion out into the hands of the people. This is the kind of thing that will help people learn how to make uh, better decisions when it comes to Biden and Trump. You talked about uh, the lack of access to, you know, the information about their real agenda in this um, transmission belt, you know, from from the ruling class, you know, through this petty bourgeois leadership. And, you know, we understand that every four years we see these great mobilizations of these celebrities, these popular figures, um, all, you know, pushing the people out to get votes. And right now it appears that the Democrats are very anxious to get the black vote, um, but we don't hear anything that speaks to the interests of the African working class community. So how should black people understand this electoral process? You're right about the Democratic Party. Um, really struggling to get the African vote. And it's really important for a sector of the ruling class to, in order to carry out its agenda. Its agenda is reflected in the program of Biden. Just like uh, other sectors of the bourgeoisie see their interests more honed uh, to the Republican Party and Donald Trump. And both of them are simply representatives of different wings of the rulers in this country, the capitalist system. Neither of them uh, will put forth a program that's going to overturn uh, the system. And therein uh, lies the contradiction that African people uh, have to contend with. The fact is that Trump has mobilized uh, essentially a white nationalist, white uh, population base. He has uh, rubbed raw the tensions, uh, uh, colonial tensions uh, in this country, especially as it's expressed in attitudes and opinions and the uh, in the system itself and its ideas. Uh, and then his strategy is to collectivize the majority of white people into his camp and hope that the uh, other peoples in this country are not as united to uh, effectively uh, be able to uh, contend uh, with the Trump election. So uh, African people, frightened out of our wits, are trying to vote uh, for the Democrats, those who vote. And then, of course, the strategy of the Republicans is to make it as difficult as possible uh, for Africans to vote. And as you mentioned, there's nobody speaking to our interests in this electoral process because neither can. And the reason that Biden and the Democrats can't speak to our interests is because they support the interests of the colonial capitalists in this country. So the question that we are often being uh, faced with is whether we want a good slave master versus a bad slave master, as if there's any such thing as a good slave master. African people have to achieve uh, independence. We have to be a self-governing people. We have to, like any dignified people with any kind of national integrity, we have to absolutely state uh, that nobody is ever going to rule an African people again, either directly or indirectly, except we, African people. That's the posture, that's the stance that we have to help uh, African 
people achieve right now in particular with this, the, how this crisis is revealing itself in this country and the world. So, you know, uh, the, the thing is that when we look at the electoral process, it's, it's, we're really looking at a nonviolent contest between these different sectors of capital. And, you know, you also, uh, you can measure uh, the extent of the vision, the split within the ruling class itself, uh, watching these things out. Uh, if you know, remember in 2016, there were uh, like uh, 17 Republicans and more than five Democrat contenders for nomination for the U.S. government. And if you understand that the electoral process is simply a nonviolent contest between sectors of the ruling class to capture control of the state that we talked about earlier, the apparatus that uh, serves them in order to realize their uh, profit-making interests. That's what the state is. And and they don't have to go to war. They don't have to uh, send out their own group of thugs to fight this group and that group most of the time uh, because they have this agreement, this nonviolent contest that happens in the form of an election. That's what it is. And to see which sector of the ruling class is going to dominate the rest of us and the rest of the world. That's what the electoral process is in this country. What about the black politicians like Kamala Harris or Obama? Kamala Harris and Obama uh, were very useful tools for the social system. Useful because, on the one hand, they shattered the image. You remember uh, Obama was uh, elected coming off this whole Bush reign where everybody in the world uh, had tired of Bush and his carryings on and his American chauvinism and America's going to dominate the world. And they, you know, actually almost celebrated the murder and killing of of Arabs and other peoples outside of this country and uh, obviously uh, the Mexicans and Africans inside this country. And so they were actually fueling uh, revolutionary struggle. They were fueling resentment of oppressed peoples around the world. And there's a sector of the bourgeoisie who recognized this and realized that in order to take this on, that it would be in the best interest of white power to represent itself in the face of the colonized. And Obama, uh, being an African man, gave them an opportunity to present what we refer to as a neo-colonial solution. Neo-colonialism simply means a white power in a black face. It's, It's not an end to colonialism. It's what might be referred to as a new colonialism. And so uh, that's what Obama was. And if you remember when he went to Egypt first, uh, I think one of his first ventures out of the country, he opened up this meeting, uh, As-Salamu Alaikum, which is, you know, Arab greeting of peace. And this at the same time where uh, the Bush administration participating in murdering Arabs and Muslims all around the world. I should say it's a Muslim greeting. And then, of course, what Obama did was uh, give permission to white power to treat us cruelly. He is the one who... Uh, in the first presidential debate, asked the first question when he ran for office about reparations, came out in opposition to reparations, gave white people, white politicians, permission to be in opposition to reparations. He made this incredible presentation, Father's Day in Chicago, where he condemned African fathers uh, for not being there uh, without mentioning, saying a damn thing about the fact that uh, so many of the African fathers are locked up in prison and being shot by police throughout this country. And he gave permission to African people to have the most reactionary attitudes about ourselves as well. 
he couldn't do that today, right now, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, the growth of uh, movement here, because uh, we've experienced that form of neocolonialism to that extent. So Obama couldn't do it. So now we have Kamala Harris. And Kamala Harris, of course, is the darling of the ruling class. She was somebody who was the attorney general, the chief uh, cop uh, in the state of California. And I think uh, also perhaps uh, uh, in Alameda County uh, for a while she uh, was a prosecutor. So, so you have, uh, had, have Biden, this team of Biden, creating laws to throw African people into jails and into the court system. And then there's, there's Kamala Harris who sends them to prison as the prosecutor. That's what she was. So uh, the fact is that they are useful. In fact, Kamala may be uh, more useful to uh, Biden uh, to winning white people than to Africans, because uh, many white people have been disturbed by Trump's overt, uh, outright colonial characterizations of Africans and other peoples around the world. And uh, inside the Democratic Party, there was a struggle about who was going to represent the interests of that sector of the ruling class. So they chose Biden, first of all, to be uh, their candidate. This is a sector of the ruling class, the status quo sector, that sector that's dominated the party uh, for the last period of time that fought off uh, any attempts by people like Bernie Sanders with their fake socialism. So here you have that sector of the ruling class figuring uh, that they wanted somebody who could uh, run for office, become presidential candidate and, and president without rocking the boat. So they got somebody who was like Trump. So they got Biden because they say he appeals to the same white people that Trump appeals to. He's going to be a good candidate. He's going to be Trump light. They're not going to do anything to shake up the boat. They're not going to create any kind of uh, problems for the system. They're going to solve the problem by getting a white man like Trump. And then what they've done with Kamala Harris is to help those white people, both uh, in the Democratic Party and otherwise, who have uh, been affected by the uprising, the struggles of African people now, that makes it necessary for Biden to say, see, I'm not like Trump. I'm like Trump this way, but I'm not like Trump this way. So he needs an African face that has the same basic politic that he would put him in jail and Harris would send them to the penitentiary. That was her job then. That's what her job is now. And uh, she is just a black face, a cover for white power. And that's why it's so important for African people to move toward uh, recognition that we have to have our own independent revolutionary party uh, that uh, works in the selfish interests of the African working class, even in the process of winning our liberation as a, as a colonized nation. Oh, Chairman. At one time, you ran for mayor of St. Petersburg, Florida, and the Rahur movement under your leadership has put measures onto the ballot and fielded candidates in various cities across the U.S. Under what circumstances does it serve the African community to engage in electoral politics? I think that what is critical for Africans to engage in the electoral uh, system is uh, organization. Organization with stated uh, objectives, organizations with the worldview that uh, advances the interest of uh, African people that also recognizes that we live as an oppressed population. And uh, organization that could uh, hold uh, anybody accountable, in including our own candidates, uh, uh, to our community and to the platform that we've agreed on uh, collectively that serves our interests. So, I mean, those, that's what's necessary. That's what's really critical. That's what's important. Part of that uh, presupposes the kind of political work 
that would happen in our community among especially the uh, African working class uh, and oppressed sector that uh, would help to uh, develop and shape and mold a political program, uh, mold an agenda uh, that speaks to the interests of African people so that when an African does vote, uh, then it has some kind of meaning, at least uh, for uh, meeting some short-term interests of the African population. And then that's possible. Uh, but the problem is that in most instances, when an African runs for office, uh, that African, in the name of the African community, is looking out for himself and his family, and it doesn't have anything to do. And the community has no ability to hold that person accountable. Most instances, it's those persons who run for office rely uh, mostly and primarily on one of the institutions, one of the parties uh, of the of the ruling class, and not on the independent capacity of the African working class ourselves, and certainly not under the independent capacity of the uh, advanced attachment, the revolutionary sector of the African working class, which is is ultimately the prerequisite that we need if we're going to be engaged in the electoral political arena. We have to have an accountable process uh, and a process that holds the politicians accountable uh, that really expresses the, uh, the aspirations and the will of African people. And that does so in a fashion uh, that helps to really negate the power, negate the influence uh, of the, the ruling class parties themselves. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Chairman Omali Yeshitela. Chairman, in 2008, in the midst of Barack Obama's run for the presidency, you were instrumental in the formation of the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations, which is preparing to hold its 12th annual March on the White House next month. Can you explain the origins and the purpose of the Black is Back Coalition? Uhuru, thank you for that question. First of all, I want to say that I was an individual that played an important role uh, in creating the coalition, but it was the African People's Socialist Party ourselves. And I was being an instrument of the African People's Socialist Party in this process of building and creating the uh, Black is Black Coalition for Social Justice, Peace and Reparations. It was a critical time. Uh, some of you may remember that the coalition was formed uh, on September 12th, uh, I think that was uh, 2009, or was it 2000? Yeah, 2009, I think it was. Uh, yeah, because Obama had been in power. So, But the previous year, uh, almost a year to the month, our party had confronted Obama at a, a campaign event in St. Petersburg, Florida. And for the first time, people got an opportunity to see Obama stutter uh, when he was asked a simple question uh, at a rally what about the black community, Obama? What about the black community? We uh, have been concerned about Obama. We've been concerned about his program. It's clear to us from the very beginning uh, that he was running a campaign that would minimize the presence, the existence, the visibility of African people on the one hand as social forces, as people with a distinct critical interest and aspirations uh, strategic to the success of this social system. We knew he was not going to do that. We saw him uh, running and without having to say anything about African people, one, and we saw him embrace the same basic foul policies uh, against peoples around the world uh, that had preceded him, that Bush and others uh, uh, had held, and that his opponents uh, were holding as well. So we felt it was really necessary. We, we saw him at the United Nations and and where people like Hugo Chavez you know, uh, uh, came up and gave him a book and all of these 
people were well wishing and thinking that because there was an African there, that this was going to make a big change uh, in the world. And Africans and other people were were ecstatic, you know, dancing in the streets, uh, not just in the United States, but in Africa and other places around the world, an African in the White House. This was supposed to really mean something profound uh, in terms of advancing our struggle, uh, our cause as a people uh, throughout the world. And we had these uh, white so-called communists and leftists who wouldn't dare say anything. And many of them were projecting the Obama selection as uh, some kind of uh, progress for the workers. Certainly that happened with some so-called Afro-communists. This was this great victory for the African working class, et cetera. So it was really necessary for us to intervene. And also we intervened because the scenario that I've just described has also reflected the fact that with the defeat of the Black Revolution of the 1960s, and this government killed off Malcolm, killed off King, killed off uh, members of the Black Panther Party, and even the co-founder of the African People's Socialist Party, we saw that there was not a coherent message coming from African people at all. So we felt like it was really necessary to try to pull together uh, as many African groups and personalities that believed in self-determination, that were uh, fighting from an anti-imperialist perspective and had some relationship with some modicum of uh, uh, science in terms of an approach. We felt like uh, all of those people who uh, were Muslims and others who uh, felt uh, threatened needed to have a, a formation that we could all come together with and uh, launched this struggle against an America that was creating mayhem for us and for peoples around the world. And we worked to forge the unity of our movement. In fact, it speaks to the tactics and strategies of our, of our party developed in the 1970s, which said that among the things that we had to do uh, was to win the leadership in the struggle for our freedom, the leadership of the forces for self-determination against colonialism uh, had to be achieved. And so that's part of what it is that we were doing uh, when we pulled together this. And from another thing, from our perspective, too, is that a coalition, a cross-class coalition, which is what you have with the Black is Black Coalition, must necessarily have the assistance uh, and leadership of the African working class as well. So that's why we felt it was really important to pull it together so that we could provide uh, some kind of leadership for the people, despite the fact that there was this euphoria that was sweeping much of this country among the African population for Obama. And it was a magnificent thing that we did we identified uh, several forces who were united in opposition to uh, what Obama represented in the world. And we pulled off a, a national demonstration against Obama. We found that in September 12th, on November 7th, we had a, a national demonstration at the White House. And that was really received well on the streets as we marched, uh, even though there were certain Africans uh, who were communists, they call themselves, and nationalists, uh, who uh, refused to uh, join the coalition, joining the mobilization that we did. Uhuru Chairman, so this is a coalition made up of various groups and individuals. Who are some of the groups or people that make up the coalition? Among the groups, this incredible banco out of uh, Michigan, a Reverend Edward Pinckney, brother out of, uh, out of Michigan, Benton Harbor, Michigan, who has been on the front line in the communities there is one of uh, the leaders of this organization. Comrade uh, Ralph Pointer out of New York, uh, as well as Betty Davis, and then Lisa Davis, uh, who works with the People's Organization for Progress in New Jersey, is uh, leading uh, a figure 
in this organization. And we have uh, people like Glenn Ford uh, from Black Agenda Report. Uh, there are just about 17 different organizations uh, represented uh, in the coalition. And uh, the numbers are growing uh, recently because I think more and more people are recognizing the significance of what it is this coalition does in the world. Chairman, I understand that the coalition has had several schools teaching Black people how to run for office and has put together a platform, the National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination. You've called for candidates representing the Black community to review and adopt this platform. What does this platform consist of? Yeah, well, just I think it's a really important thing that you just raised because the coalition has done schools teaching ordinary African people how to run for office. And teaching some of the people who are active on, uh, throughout our communities, throughout this country and in other places, in fact, uh, how t- to run for office. And the objective has been to destroy the monopoly of the African petty bourgeoisie uh, in the electoral arena, because the vast majority of African people who participate in political life do so through elections, most of whom uh, do so in the Democratic Party. So we had to crash that party. And we had to give Africans an ability to participate, to take the mystery out of running for office, what it takes to run for office, how to put our own measures on the ballot, uh, how to initiate a, a process that would guarantee that uh, such issues like Black community control of the police could be put on the ballot, uh, how we can do recalls, which is something that Reverend uh, Ed Pinckney is an expert on. So those are some of the things that we've done. And the National Black Agenda for Self-Determination is also something that we forged because we wanted to make concrete what is self-determination, what does it look like? And it also provides us with an ability to create a revolutionary national democratic program that can unite the African nation in the struggle against colonial domination. And over a period of a year or so, we held 11 uh, state conventions And we had a preparatory convention in Philadelphia, a national preparatory convention, and then a national convention in Washington, D.C., where with the participation of the people, we adopted this revolutionary national democratic program or the National Black Agenda for Self-Determination. So that was really important. And and first thing on the the agenda speaks to the issue of uh, women, African women. And it speaks to our responsibility to uh, defend the interests of African women, support the interests and aspirations of African women living under colonial domination. We spoke to the issue of the family and protecting the institution of the African family from uh, the predators, from the predatory uh, colonial system and the relationships that it produces. We had a demand for black community control of the police. We demanded uh, also uh, opening up these prison doors and freeing uh, all of the the African prisoners and and free the uh, political prisoners, uh, which is one of the most important demands that we have on the National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination. And it spoke to reparations. Uh, It spoke to the issue of American and European uh, domination uh, in Africa, in particular American domination in Africa, and how uh, reparations uh, have to be paid uh, to Africa and to African people. I mean, these are some of the issues that were spoken of, that are spoken to uh, in this National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination. So, Chairman, you have a mobilization coming up in November. Can you tell us about that as well? For people who are interested in attending the march or attending the online conference the following day, 
how can they register and get more information? Well, what everybody should do is go to blackisbackcoalition.org because the uh, mobilization that you're speaking of, uh, which occurs uh, on uh, November 7th, that's the rally. We're going to have a rally at Malcolm X Park and a march uh, on the White House. And after getting there, a rally across the street from the White House at Lafayette Park. And uh, this rally will be our response to the Democrats and the Republicans. There's no telling what the situation in this country is going to be like uh, at that time, in part because it's not even clear that the uh, election results will have been acquired and or united with. Uh, There are even suggestions from uh, certain security forces in the United States that uh, a possible violence is going to happen regardless of who wins in this election. So uh, we want to say that uh, the masses of the people did not attend uh, the Democratic Convention. They didn't attend uh, the Republican Party Convention. The masses were left out of this discussion altogether. Africans were left out of this discussion. And so what uh, we will be able to do is bring everybody together, bring masses of people together, open up this uh, mobilization for thousands of people to come out and express their dissatisfaction with the situation in this country and in the world as it relates to African people, people who have been uh, locked down under the COVID and locked down uh, under a police threat and other kinds of contradictions that we face as a people now have an opportunity to come out, the opportunity that could not be satisfied uh, at the uh, Democratic Party convention, certainly. Uh, and so we can come out. And the, the theme of this mobilization uh, and this conference, which happens Sunday, the following day, the theme uh, is Black Power Matters. Black Power Matters, down with colonialism, Black community control of the police. And uh, we are inviting uh, other forces uh, to participate. We're looking for participation from Union de Barrio, a, a revolutionary organization, national liberation organization of the of, of Mexican people. We are investigating how to bring in uh, folk from Palestine and from the Filipino movement to express their solidarity with Black power, uh, to express their solidarity with uh, opposition to colonialism and to express their solidarity with the demand for black community control of the police. And uh, so that's something about what it's going to look like. And then on Sunday, uh, the following day, uh, we'll have a conference and this conference is going to be virtual. And so to get all the information, to register, 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 which is extremely important, we need you to register uh, so that we can get a sense of what it is that we can look for moving uh, forward with this mobilization and we can get a sense of where you are, uh, those are the people who are listening to this broadcast. So go to blackisbackcoalition.org, blackisbackcoalition.org. Uh, register right away, uh, indicate your intentions to be in Washington, D.C. This is going to be an outside mobilization because we are conscious of the, of the issue of the, of the uh, COVID-19 but we actually feel like it's necessary for African people to show up and to unite, obviously, and publicly with a cohesive uh, demand uh, that speaks to our interests as a people, that we have to have power, that we have to end colonialism, and that we have to assume uh, the authority uh, in our own communities uh, over uh, what might the security forces that are called uh, police, that there must be a Black community control of the police and not some cops who 
uh, sent in to continue to accidentally kill us. That's what we're looking for. Uhuru. The Black People's March on the White House will be on Saturday, November 7th. For more information, visit blackisbackcoalition.org. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today has been Chairman Omali Eshetela, the leader of the African Revolution and author of several books that can be found on burningspearmarketplace.com. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Chairman Amalia Shetela, for joining us today. And we'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Colonial virus is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Down with the colonial.